Tonight we are opening up our Bible in the Song of Solomon. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And so Solomon, the son of David, is king of Israel and maybe around 930, 970 to 930 B.C., something like that, probably writing the Song of Solomon when he's early, very early in his reign. He's obviously old enough to make life's biggest decisions, and he's obviously king, so we put this early in his, his life. It is essentially a love song. We know that Solomon wrote a 1,005 songs, it tells us elsewhere, This is the only one we have, so it must have been a keeper. And you would think people would have had enough of silly love songs, but I look around me and I see it isn't so. Oh, no. So, you know, there isn't anything overtly religious about the book of Song of Solomon. And you pick it up and you read it, it certainly is a love song, but there there isn't anything really specifically religious written in it. God's not mentioned The Lord's not mentioned. The word God, Lord, not in there. The word bless is not in there. The word blessed only shows up one time. And so so we come to the Song of Solomon, and we've got to talk about, I guess, interpreting it in some ways, because some people actually avoid the Song of Solomon, because as you read it, it's plainly loaded with a lot of imagery about the passion between a husband and wife. That's essentially what the Song of Solomon is. Literally, if you take it literal, that it's a husband and wife. They are deeply in love, and it's going to reference and make some references to sex in marriage. So the Song of Solomon really kind of is PG-13 in some ways, and we'll keep it PG, but that's why some people have avoided it over the years, because they don't want to... They don't want to talk about that, but the reality is, you know, that the love between a husband and a wife and the intimacy they experience was God's idea. Now, some historical notes about the Song of Solomon. You know, after the Reformation, people camped out really hard and kind of like the book was Galatians and Romans, talks about being saved by grace alone through faith and you know, it's taking strong stance against mixing in works in there in Galatians. But before that, in the medieval times, really, the, the, the church really camped out hard on the Song of Solomon. They did that because the way they interpreted it. Um, the way they interpreted it was they saw it primarily as an allegory between God and his people, a love song between them. And that's, you know, the, the book doesn't specifically say you're supposed to allegorize it that way. It doesn't. Nowhere in Scripture does. Now, there are Scriptures that we are to allegorize and draw some spiritual truths from. Uh, There's some literal narratives in in Genesis, Hagar and Sarah and the children they have. That's in the New Testament tells us there is an allegorical meaning behind that, even though it is a literal story. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us that we are supposed to allegorize the Song of Solomon. But I don't think that that's unfair to do that. And interpreters down through the ages have camped out really hard on the Song of Solomon and drawn a lot of powerful Bible teaching from the Song of Solomon. One guy in the 3rd century, he wrote a 10-volume commentary set just on the Song of Solomon. Charles Spurgeon himself, Prince of Preachers, he wrote and preached 59 sermons just out of the Song of Solomon. 
just on, on the allegorical meaning of the picture of God and his people, the love between them. Some people call the Song of Solomon the Holy of Holies that way because it, it takes you into the very heart of the meaning of an intimate relationship between God and his children. So um, really the players in the Song of Solomon are very, very obvious. There's really three, maybe four. There's Solomon, and then there is the Shulamite. The Shulamite is the gal who captures Solomon's heart completely, and she's in love with him. We don't know her name. We don't know anything else about her other than she seems to be from the north, um, maybe up in the Lebanon area, close to the borders of Lebanon. There's another uh, set of voices um, in unison on the sidelines of them two in exchanging, talking to each other, and that is the daughters of Jerusalem are on the side there kind of as a, a one voice commenting on the things that are on there. Also, there's one other voice, just a couple of sentences. Her brothers show up in chapter 2 with only a couple of sentences. Some people, uh, as they read the Book of Solomon, say that there is another person and that, that the Song of Solomon isn't just between Solomon and this gal, but that there's a second male player who is competing for her affections, and Solomon wins that way. Because the story goes like this as we pick it up. And I should say this, it's not a chronological love story. It's not like sleepless in Jerusalem and they just, you know, they slowly fall in love. And they're just captions of their romance. And so sometimes it's hard to know exactly what they're talking about without knowing where it is. And so you got to kind of guess on where they're speaking about in their relationship. So the story goes like this, if we put it together correctly. Solomon travels through the country early in his career incognito. He isn't out with full regalia, you know, complete royal entourage, nothing like that. Just kind of out traveling and falls in love with this gal. Sees her, wham, they just fall in love. And then, then he goes away and comes back and receives her, takes her to himself with all the, you know, all the pomp and circumstance. This time he shows up with all the trappings of being a king at the peak of wealth. She is swept off her feet and taken back to um, their house. And so some people see, say that, well, there's this, that, that other guy that shows up incognito is another person, and Solomon just happens to win the day. And I don't like that picture. I, I like it much more that it's Solomon, and that he comes along, and without her falling in love with the things he brings, she falls in love with him, rather. And they, they then um, are seen later when he shows up, of course, you know, uh, full regalia, everything. I like that picture, because I think that fits something else in the scripture. And this is where, again, we... We, you know, there's no permission to really allegorize it, but it fits, doesn't it? It fits, that story, um, that Jesus came to earth without form or appearance, no, no you know, appearance that we would desire him, but um, he wins our hearts, and then he's coming back later with all the regalia, all the pomp and circumstance, and he's going to take us to his, uh, to his home. And so I think that fits much better, and I think that... Um, in some ways, um, the scripture does allow us to allegorize it. If you go to Ephesians, 
chapter 5, where it talks about husbands and wives. It talks about husbands and wives, and it slips its verbiage um, between Christ and the church and husbands and wives almost seamlessly so that you can't really, I mean, he has to tell you that he's not talking about marriage anymore. He's talking about Christ and the church, and he, he, he talks about it so it's like it's almost interchangeable. And so, in some ways, you know, I think it's okay to allegorize it. Now, allegorizing scripture has always got to be done real carefully. Um, I will tell you as we go through this when we're going to allegorize it, uh, at least tonight. And um, sometimes we will, and I'll say this is, you know, about Christ and the church. Uh, most of the time as we interpret it, it'll be just about um, a man and a woman, and they're falling in love, and we're going to watch it. And um, um, so uh, I'll let you know how that's going. But again, allegorization can be kind of a little dangerous because there really isn't any borders that says you can take it this far or not that far. And, and there's no authority really to say what that means, whether you're going to allegorize something. So you've got to be real careful with that. But in some ways this does really fit in some clear-cut ways. But okay, all that introduction, right? Song of Solomon... Verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So here we go. The Shulamite. Verse 1, it's uh, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. Um, okay, so we, we walk in on this. And she obviously is in love with this guy. Um, she desires his physical attention. Um, she wants, she's inviting him to kiss her. Um, and uh, uh, down here it says, your name is ointment poured forth. Um, okay, I, I, you know, as I interpret this, I put this early in their, in their relationship. They are not married, I would think. Um, uh, she very much wants his all of his attention. Uh, uh, she has all of her, his attention. Um, and um, you can think back on your times if you're married when you, you know, first met your spouse and it was overwhelming, you know. And you can even go back to the days of, you know, junior high when, when you know, you, you first kind of got those crushes and somebody captured your attention and it was their name, you know, and their name was, you, you did it really serious because your book covers, you're free to write on your book covers, you wrote their name on their book cover, right? Okay, well, there's some of that going on here. I'd, obviously, that, um, that novelty and the uh, romantic things going on there that way that are that are youthful and, and beautiful. But I think there's some good wisdom in here, too. Um, as we talk about this again, we're going to look at it from the standpoint of them right now not being married. So let's see if we can draw some applications for, for um, you know, those who are single and what, how, how to look at moving into marriage and, and planning on marriage. Well, here's something right here. It says, your name is ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away. What does that mean? Well, um, you know, a lot of times people, and when they start to move into the idea of getting married, they can look at, at 
um, at somebody and be completely blind <laughs> to glaring character deficiencies. And um, they're just blind to it. Uh, I, I think that right here it says, your name is ointment poured forth. Your name in the, in the scriptures, obviously, people's name spoke about their character and their reputation, who they were, right? You know, Jacob, he had the name heel catcher because he was always a guy that was plotting out, you know, how to, how to get the most out of this bargain at your expense. And um, so uh, your name is an ointment poured forth. I think this what this is saying is, look, uh, not only do I love you for, you know, your, your physical appearance, which has captured all my attention, but, but I love you for also the fact that you have magnificent character. And, and it's attested to, it says, therefore the virgins love you. Um, you know, here's a lesson right away. If, if you are thinking of, uh, you know, when you get to that place of, of wanting to start thinking about getting married, well, listen to the voices around you. What are they saying about that person you are thinking of marrying? Um, you know, that they're, they don't have the rose-colored glasses that you do. <laughs> and sometimes those voices need to warn you, and you need to listen to them. Uh, I've done a lot of marriage counseling, done a lot of premarital counseling, a lot, a lot of post-marriage counseling. And, um, um, you know, there's a title of a book um, out there that says, Good Marriages Take Time. Bad marriages take more time. And um, um, sometimes people can, can, can overlook obvious deficiencies that will make life very difficult. So, so again, here, here's the application I think I'm going to pull out of this one, is that um, deal with character issues in um, the early stages of, of uh, engagement and betrothal things. Um, you know... Again, people avoided the Song of Solomon because they didn't want to deal with the passion that's plainly loaded into this book. And so um, somewhere along the line, someone got the idea that um, the passion between a husband and wife, specifically as it speaks to physical intimacy here, well, that's not nearly as spiritual as being single or refraining from that. And that is plainly unbiblical, not the Bible. Um, there are places where Jesus says there are advantages in, in some circumstances. But the rule is for almost all of humanity and almost everybody in the body of Christ to be married and to enjoy physical intimacy. Um, let me give you a... Um, just some, some views on that here, and I'm going to quote a guy named uh, David Guzik as he lays out some history here about this idea. He says, this idea is decidedly contrary, um, about, in other words, the passion that's represented in the book here and the approval of, uh, of physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. Uh, this idea is decidedly contrary to the negative view towards marriage that came in uh, early in the history of the church. At 325 at the Council of Nicaea, a proposal was made to prohibit all clergy from living as married, but the council did not approve the proposal. In 386, Pope Siricius commanded that all priests live as celibates, and later this order was extended to include deacons in the church. In this period, many people who were ordained as priests were already married, 
So Leo the Great, in some, some, from some 440 to 461, out of concern for these wives, did not allow priests to put their wives away, but commanded that the priest and his wife live together as brother and sister, that is, without any sexual relationship. This command led to the rule that a married man could not be ordained as a priest unless he and his wife took a vow that they would live as celibate, and then led further to the refusal to ordain anyone who was or had been married. Um, that's not based on Scripture. Look, everybody of spiritual significance in the Old Testament, all the patriarchs were married and had children. Uh, all the priests were required to be married. The Old Testament high priest, the priesthood was handed down by family. The, old, the, the high priest had to be married and had to have children. In the New Testament, um, it plainly says uh, um, that in Hebrews 13, marriage bed is undefiled, honor should be honored by, among all. First Timothy, First Timothy 3, Titus 1, church elders, leaders are supposed to be married, should be married. And, and then really, when you go to the Bible, you look at the last image that's given, symbolic image is given of God and man, and it is a wedding feast. I mean, you could have picked anything. So the idea that um, it's more spiritual to refrain from the physical intimacy of a marriage, it's not, Bible, it's not the Bible. And so these people are, um, they are on their way to getting married, and they're talking about it, they're, they're reflecting on it. Here we go. Uh, verse 4, the daughters of Jerusalem chime in, we will run after you. In other words, here's the voice of people on the sidelines saying, what's happening is an awesome thing. We love this. This is great. He says, the Shulamite, verse 4, the king has brought me into his chambers. Um, I don't think I'm going to take that literally at this point. Um, again, I put them early in their relationship. Um, I think this is kind of a poetic way of saying maybe he's, he's you know, the, the affections of his heart are open to me. He's, he's brought me into the secrets of his heart kind of thing. The daughters of Jerusalem uh, say, we will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. The Shulamite says, rightly do they love you. Again, what do others think of him? So, you know, when I talk to um, gals who are thinking about getting married, I like to ask the important question, um, again, what do others think of him? And I know you're looking at him with rose-colored glasses. You think he's Superman and he's knight in shining armor. But all that's, the armor's going to rust and, um, you know, he, he's going to come down to earth. He can't fly. And um, the idea is, can you respect him? I mean, that's what the scriptures say to her. Gives her is the most important thing. Can you respect him? So there'll be, there'll be things for guys to think about too. And so um, a good key, Clue is if what do others think about him? Do they agree with his character? Is good for you? She says, verse five: I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me; they made me the keeper of the vineyards. 
but my own vineyard I have not kept. Okay, here's a little biographical background we pick up from this. Um, she is um, a manual laborer. You know, she's not from the elite class that would be able to uh, have servants doing this work. She was out in the fields. And because of that, spending a lot of time out working in the vineyards, she's got tan lines. You know, her neck, whatever, it was just covered. She's, and, and, of course, that was being, being um, bronzed in the sun that way was a sign that you were, um, n- you know, not wealthy enough to have servants. And so it was kind of a, um, well, well, the elite class thought that it was more, far more preferable to, to be very fair-skinned and have no tan, you know, no sun on you, because that meant you were, you, you were well enough off to have servants to do all your work for you. And, um, you know, today that's completely reversed, right? I mean, um, the, the, the tan, you know, is in, and you look healthy, and, and you know, the, the rich and wealthy, they can sit all day on the lounge chair, you know, sipping fruity drinks, bathing in the sun and stuff, and I hope they're wearing sunscreen. Um, so um, she says, I'm, I'm unsure of my appearance. She's kind of unsure of her, her looks. She's kind of insecure about it because she does have the appearance, you know, the hallmarks of somebody who's just an average commoner. And so um, it says here, my mother's sons were angry with me. Apparently um, the father's missing. The mother has remarried has some other sons, and they're making her do all the work. I don't know, something like that. So she's a little embarrassed about that. Okay, let me chime in there, Lane's point of view. Um, uh, you know, I think guys ought to look for a girl who is not afraid to get dirty and work. And it's, I'm not saying that that's what she's bound for, but... I, I think guys ought to, you know, guys themselves ought to be obviously very, very uh, accustomed to hard work. And um, I think it's wise to uh, evaluate that in whomever you're considering for marriage. Are, are they, what's their view on hard work? Um, she'll, so, I, you know, there you go. Uh, tell me, O whom you, O you whom I love, verse 7, where you feed your flock. Where you make it rest at noon, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? She doesn't know where he is. She wants to find him. And then he responds, If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Okay, guys. You need to update the references a little bit if you're going to take any cues from the Song of Solomon. Don't call your wife a horse. Okay, that doesn't work. Um, the an analogy here is that uh, a filly is out of place among Pharaoh's chariots. They were all required to be stallions, you know, big, strong, muscular things, impressive looking, and to throw in, you know, a three-year-old um, horse, female horse in the midst, is going to cause some excitement amongst those guys. So um, he's saying, you're that way to me. And he says, verse 10, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. So the daughters of Jerusalem chime in. They say, we will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. Okay, I'm going to 
again, interject here. Um, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck's neck with chains of gold. Um, if she's an ordinary gal working out in the farms and stuff, he has he has treated her well if she's got um, neck with chains of gold. I, I know maybe that's an allegory, but anyways, um, anyway, I think the idea is here, he's treating her well publicly. And um, then others see it and respect that. In verse 11, we will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. I think that's so important um, for um, guys to treat your wives very, very well, in, especially in public. Um, you know, I, I, I really cringe when I see a guy, um, you know, trying to uh, have some fun with his wife in public and using sarcasm to, you know, just kind of have some fun at her expense. And, and I don't think there's any place for that. Um, you know, sarcasm that way is kind of like, you know, tickling them with a razor blade. Uh, you, yeah, you're tickling them, but you're causing some damage too. And um, um, I've seen that in, in, in marriages, and I think it's a really bad uh, thing to do for guys to not treat their wives very, very well in public. Um, other guys, other people see you treat your wives well in public, you know, they will respond to that. They see and respect and treat her well also. Verse 12, uh, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. Okay, now what in the world does that mean? Um, well, um, again, I put them at this time not married. Um, maybe you do. Maybe you see the whole book of Solomon as, you know, honeymoon. That's okay. Uh, I'm not interpreting it that way because I don't want to do a Bible study just on somebody's honeymoon. So um, uh, this I'm going to say, look, um, how, how do we interpret this? Well, you remember those early days of dating when you... Uh, fell in love, and just, to, you know, her perfume was enough to capture all of your attention. And, and you remember, you remember that. Don't, don't play like you don't, like you're cool. Um, and, and girls, you remember you wanted to take something home that smelled like him? <laughs> all right. There you go. You're laughing at me. Don't laugh at me. Um, that's what's going on here. Again, these people are in love, and we're watching it. You know, and uh, again, you know, God puts his stamp of approval on this passion between a husband and a wife because it's in God's word. He said, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Again, our culture kind of misses that, but um, doves were seen as very peaceable, very gentle, very beautiful creatures. And so this is, a, you know, this is as flowing and as beautiful of a compliment that they had at that time. And I think it's pretty high. It's because it, we don't get it because it's above us. <laughs> you know, our compliments are, hey, you're hot, babe. I, I don't think they would understand that. They would be like, what does that mean? So, verse 16, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. Our, the beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters fir. 
Um, he's, you know, I think they're just saying that they're spending time outside together, these kinds of things. Um, now, verse chapter 2, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. That verse is hard to pin down on who this is about. Um, people put that as um, the uh, Shulamite, generally. Um, of course, you've heard Jesus called the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon. Um, I think that's a, a, a lovely sentiment, but I think it's misplaced. And the language here... The rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys, really, um, if, if you put this in the mouth of the Shulamite, um, she's really not saying something extreme about herself. She's saying something rather self-deprecating. Because language is um, not the literal rose, it's just kind of a common budding plant that happens to be a wildflower in the, in the, in the fields. And the lily of the valleys, again, it's a commonplace plain flower. She's saying, I'm just an average flower. I'm just a wallflower. You know, why are you interested in me? Verse 2, like a lily among thorns, so was my love among the daughters. He's saying, no, no, no. You have all my attention and you are beautiful beyond anything else. And so she responds, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. Now, they probably wouldn't have known what apple trees are. That's probably more like a pomegranate or an orange tree or something. But I sat down in his shade with, with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Um, verse 4, uh, the Shulamite to the daughters of Jerusalem, she says, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. Um, so um, his banner over me with, was love. Um, um, I think this is um, a, uh, a view of um, publicly proclaimed love for her. By him, and um, um, you know, I, I think this is one place where you can allegorize um, and plop this into the relationship of Jesus and His bride, us. Um, you know, the banner that He flies over us is love. Um, he has uh, claimed you as His own, and He loves you, and He's not ashamed of, of to do that in the world. He He you know, came to earth um, to win you and to win us. And he wasn't ashamed to identify with us completely. And uh, so I think that's a, a beautiful way we get to allegorize this. Verse 6, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. This is one of those PG places. This is plainly, she, I, I think she's having a dream. She's dreaming about the time when they will be intimate. I don't know. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Um, now, that's an important verse, actually, in this book. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. It's repeated again in chapter 3, verse 5, and then over in chapter 8, verse 4. And again, sometimes we allegorize, sometimes we just look at it for two people falling in love and what the Bible says about this. I think this is an important verse. Do not stir up 
nor awaken love until it pleases. Um, um, you know, there is uh, a time and a place that God has set for the awakening of that part of our life, um, the, the physical intimacy type uh, side of our, our, of our life is supposed to be in marriage. Um, you know, again, it's, it's a faulty, unbiblical view to say that God doesn't approve of sexual intimacy between husband and wife. He does. He invented it. He, in, he invented the parts and installed them. Okay? <laughs> um, so um, it's his idea. Um, but they, it, it's, you know, the analogy that I've heard is, is intimacy is like fire in your house. You put it in the right place. You put some guards on it. And you protect it. And, and it brings warmth to the whole house. But you take it out of its place and you let it go wherever. You take it out of the confines where it's safe. And it'll burn your house down. And, uh, you know, our culture is saturated with sexual immorality. It's used for everything. And our kids um, are saturated with um, images that they cannot process and ideas that they cannot process. Um, by the time they get to the age where, you know, that comes online, they get, they begin to the bodies begin to change. Now suddenly, all this stuff makes sense to them, and it's too much for them. And they, and and you know, if our kids are being um, given a view of human sexuality that comes from TV and from movies and the internet, boy, they're, they're already set to lose. Um, do not stir or awaken love until it pleases. Um, we're supposed to leave that part of our life alone, and, and that it's a switch in our life that we're not supposed to switch on until God gives us permission. But the idea is it's not ever supposed to be switched off either. And see, that's, what, that's the hard part, is when, when the youth are encouraged to... Oh, I remember I was talking to... Um, a family here about schools, and um, they were wrestling with what school to go to, a public school or a, a parochial, you know, um, religious school or this other one, and, and they were in public school, and the, and the mom came over to me and said, you know, my kids came over to me in third grade, and they, they came home and they said, the boys said, I'm supposed to have a girlfriend, I'm supposed to have sex with her in third grade. There's, if you know, I don't know, I don't see a whole lot of youth around here tonight, but, you know, our, our kids are need to be sheltered from that, and we're the ones to shelter them from that. And we're the ones to, to put on display the proper place and the proper manifestation of, of, of uh, intimacy between a husband and a wife. And, you know, they're young, they don't understand that. What we... Tell them that what they're seeing on TV, if they're seeing things, we, we turn it off. We say, that's, don't look at that. That's, that's immoral. Just not look at that. You know, and, and we're not talking about the R-rated stuff. We're just talking about the stuff on the commercials. So play it serious, especially dads. There's somehow the, the culture has written a permission slip to dads to be casual about that. Uh, that's just that's not accurate. If anybody should hold that line... It should be the dads. It's not saying the moms are off the key, uh, off there, but 
Uh, sons are going to learn that from their dads. And um, so let's keep going. I like that phrase, do not stir or awaken love until it pleases. So, chapter 2, verse 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the helms. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Again, I think she's probably daydreaming about him because here comes Superman, you know, he's bounding over mountains with a single bound and... He is looking through the windows, gazing. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. She imagines a time when she can be completely in his view, and she, he's free to, you know, just take her, take in her the, the vision of who she is. My beloved spoke and said to me, "Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone." The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs and the vines with the tender grapes. The vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Um, she's dreaming, or, or maybe this is a literal time when he's inviting her to, to spend you know, the beauty of spring with her, with him. And he says, O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock and the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet. Your face is lovely. I think he sees her, again, if we put this as Solomon, early in his life as king, finding her in no name, nowheresville, he finds this girl who captures his heart completely. And I guess this is a place where I think it's, it's very easy to allegorize this between Christ and the church. He sees you as that hidden treasure in the field. Uh, Matthew 13, right? 45, 46. You know the parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. Uh, or the treasure in the field also, where he, he finds a treasure in the field, and so he buys the field to get the treasure. I think this is a great, great place to camp out on the allegorization of, of Song of Solomon in that uh, the Lord sold everything, gave everything away so that he could purchase you uh, when, he, when he came to earth and died for the sin of the world. He, was buying, he wasn't buying the world. He didn't need another world. He's got plenty of worlds. What he wanted was you. So then her brothers, here's a minor player, her brothers, and they say... Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. What does that mean? Well, again, she's, she's a farmer, and, you know, the, the vines and the things are, are very important. Uh, you know, he's got vines. There's a lot of agricultural images here. Her brothers, I think, say something along the lines about these little foxes. Um, the little foxes would be very real in a vineyard. The little foxes would be the ones that get in unnoticed. You know they're there, but you don't think they're doing anything until it's too late. And then you've noticed how much damage they've caused. You know, they're, they're digging away here and there. They're exposing roots, um, doing irreparable damage. And so he, he's saying, you know, catch us the little foxes. What does that mean? Well, again, you know, I, th- I, think, think, I think if we were to... to, to talk about relationships, it's the little things that are dangerous, that are left undealt with. It's the little foxes. If you 
hear us talking about uh, marriage problems and marriage counseling. You'll hear us talk about the little foxes. It's the little things in marriages. A lot, you know, a lot of times marriages get lost not in big things, but in a mountain of little tiny things that, that never get dealt with. You can lose sight of the beauty of the relationship and the love that's really there because the little things never get taken care of. You know, just the everyday little bits of forgiveness. It's, it's so daily, you know. Um, the little bits of humility. The little bits of, you know, love says love covers a multitude of sins. And so, uh, catching the little foxes before there is long-term damage. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Verse 16, he feeds his flock among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bether. So, maybe he shows up, maybe, he, maybe she's dreaming this, maybe not. Maybe he does show up, and they have some encounter you know, of seeing one another, talking to one another. Um, and, she, you know, he's got responsibilities as a king. He can't stay, so he's got to go back. Maybe maybe her dream comes to an end. I don't know. You can uh, think about that, however you want to interpret that. Chapter 3 says, By night on my bed I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares, I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about in the city found me. I said, have you seen the one I love? Um, so, you know, my, my Bible says he's got some sort of troubled night. Um, um, here's what I would say if we're going to allegorize this and put this into our allegory. Um, look, um, She's not satisfied with secondhand information about him. She wants personal contact with him. That's what that means, right? So, you know, in our relationship with the Lord, he pursues us in love. And there comes a time when we need to respond. And so, so think about your own relationship with the Lord. Are you, do you have a personal seeking of the Lord? Or is secondhand information about the Lord satisfying for you? These, these Bible studies are necessary. We're commanded to be here in fellowship with, the, with one another and study God's word. And we're, we're all built up together as the, as the Holy Spirit works here in our midst. But there is also a need for us to individually seek the Lord. And, and this is kind of, in some ways, secondhand information. You know, I'm up here, we're opening up the scriptures. And in some ways... It's secondhand information. Um, she was not satisfied with that. I think that's a great allegorical picture. Uh, she wants personal contact with him, and we ought to have and desire personal contact with Jesus. And uh, so, scarcely had I passed to them these watchmen who were out uh, keeping watch over the city, when I found the one I love, I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother into the chamber of her who conceived me. Um, uh, she brings him home, safe and secure, I guess. And um, again, I'm going to allegorize that, bringing Jesus home. I mean, that's pretty simple, right? 
I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir or awaken love until it pleases. Okay, now we're past the point where Solomon in his uh, plain rap appearance has gone away and now he's coming back. And so we're going to getting this, this entourage, this uh, royal... Um, procession, you know, he pulls up with the, with the stretch limo and uh, all the accoutrements of, of wealth and importance, and she's going to be swept off her feet. Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants' fragrant powders? I think that's interesting that it's fra- uh, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. You know, um, you could have picked anything there. Myrrh and frankincense um, are uh, some of the um, the gifts that were given, right, um, by the Magi, the time of Jesus' birth. Again, speaking about um, royalty and also his death. And I, I think this is a direct tie-in in some allegorical ways that, that, that would be easy to, to see, again, uh, the Lord returning in all of his glory, and uh, we will see him as he is, not you know, not as the carpenter of Nazareth, but as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, behold, it is Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men all around it of the valiant of Israel. Uh, they all hold, hold swords, being experts in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh, because of the fear in the night. Um, in other words, you know, being around him, you're safe. <laughs> uh, of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. Uh, you know, that's the thing that the guys, you know, the couch, the covered little thing that's beautiful, it's lush, it's got the nice curtains, it's cushy, it's carried by guys on poles. <laughs> It's made, uh, he made its pillars of silver, its supports of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. So he shows up and uh, is overwhelming. Chapter 4. Um, behold... Uh, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Here's the dove's eyes again. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Okay, again, we're going to, uh, we laugh at that, and these are a little more updated, but again, put it in context. It's a beautiful thing, and we're going to snicker at it, but, um, you know, he's saying her hair is beautiful. It's long, it's dark, you know, that's just, his type, man, and he, she's it. And uh, your hair is a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing. Every one which bears twins, none is bearing among them. Hey, have a nice teeth then was a big deal. Um, you know, she doesn't have any missing teeth either. And uh, it's, it's, you know, that's that's... Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Again, these are beautiful um, uh, compliments he's paying her. He's, he's finding the most 
um, elegant and meaningful uh, phrases to, to speak of her, her beauty to her. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. You think, you know, duck when you give her that compliment, because um, your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory. Um, I think the idea loaded in that is, with all the, the bucklers and the shields, is one of elegance and... Um, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's an idea of um, she's not downcast, she's not walking around, you know, hmm. uh, she knows who she is, she's comfortable with who she is, and um, the way she carries herself is, is admirable, and he's, he's in love with that. Um, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Um, again, this is a place, I think that verse is easy to allegorize, right? You know, that's the way Jesus sees you. Um, we... Um, are told to come boldly before the throne of grace um, because he sees us in himself, in his son, in Jesus, in his perfect righteousness. And, and you know, sometimes it's hard for us to, to uh, it's hard for us to see ourselves that way because we know ourselves to some degree. Uh, we know our failures, we know our weaknesses, we know our shortcomings. And, um, but, you know, Again, we go to Ephesians 5, we talk about that exchange between Christ and the church and marriage. Um, I'm going to go and read it real quick because it's got a great... It says, um, Husbands ought to love their wives just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself. That's you being presented back to the Lord, how, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And so uh, I think it's very easy to find an allegorical parallel there. That's the way the Lord sees us. Um, we can be very self-conscious about our shortcomings before him and things, and that's okay. It's humility. But you've got to know that, that he doesn't see you that way. He sees you perfect and he sees you clothed in perfect righteousness you didn't earn it you didn't you're not sustaining it with your works it was given to you as a free gift because Jesus bought that on the cross for you and uh, he took away everything that might be a spot or anything that's imperfect and he, he made himself personally responsible for that and paid for it it's gone it's gone instead he sees you clothed in perfect righteousness. Then there is no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, Amana, your refrigerator. Go from the top of the refrigerator. Look, no. From the top of Sanir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. Now, that's why we think she lives up in the north. 
he's now come up um, with this uh, uh, entourage and is sweeping her back towards his own house. You have ravaged my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravaged my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link in your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. Um, he's plainly not related to her, okay? That's just a term of, uh, of intimacy, um, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices? Your lips, O oh my spouse, drink as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. Okay, that's pretty... Um, pretty um, uh, symbolic uh, language in verses 12 through 15 that talks about the fact that um, she's a virgin and, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, and uh, it's, it's a garden enclosed, my sister, a fountain sealed. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a rare thing today. I think um, um, it, it's... You know, there's, there's, um, there's, there's. When you go to the Book of Revelation, there are those who sing to the Lord in a special way. The hundred forty-four thousand, right? They're virgins. Um, they're they're pure. There's there's a unique position of virginity, of purity that um, needs to be uh, valued very heavily to our children. And when it comes time for the to, to talk about that stuff, you know, the culture says, you know, uh, you should go out and try it all before you get married. And you'll be happier if you, you know, you take samples of everybody and then figure out what you want. The Bible is just the opposite of that. The Bible says, no, you keep yourself pure uh, until you're married. And then you present your spouse with that gift of your virginity and uh, for guys and girls. And, uh, um, boy, that is, I mean, that, they make comedies about that these days, don't they? Um, those who take that road are um, not esteemed in our society. Um, but we need to teach your kids uh, sex before marriage, wrong. And uh, keep yourself for your spouse. The Shulamite Awake, O north wind, and come, O south, blow upon my garden. Okay, all right, there's no getting around it now. Um, He has shown up, and they are going off to be married, and um, the language here is plain that they are off to their wedding night. And um, I'm glad I got a bottle of water here. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south, blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. Okay, we really got to go towards verse 2 of chapter 5 because 
um, it's one thought. They are now, they got the green light from God. They're married. They're going to enjoy the sexual relationship for the first time. It says, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. And so she's inviting him. He's inviting her. There you go. And then finally, uh, the end of verse um, 1, actually, to his friends, he says, Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. So you're ending a Bible study with these people on their wedding night. When's the last time you had a Bible study like that, huh? We're going to stand up and pray and go our way. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the book of Solomon, Lord, where you praise highly, obviously, that which you've created, the intimacy between a husband and a wife. Thank you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to communicate these things in wisdom and in uh, purity to those coming up behind us, our kids, our grandkids. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord, and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.